If you're a guest here today, my name's Mark Myfear, and I have the privilege of leading the team here at Door Creek, and um, it's good that you're here. Wherever you're at in your faith walk or trying to figure it out, this is a good place to be. I don't know how your week went, but I had a great week. Um, it started on Monday when we checked out the ad in the paper that said, Cairn Terrier Pups for Sale. Now, a lot of you don't know this, but two weeks ago, we had to put down our nine-year-old Cairn Terrier. So there's been a lot of hurt and heartache. And Monday, we checked out the pups, you know, want to make sure it wasn't a, you know, a puppy mill factory, you know, that kind of a deal. It was all up and up, and we brought home not one, but two. And we haven't lost our mind here completely, because Grandma, before we left, said, please bring me one home, too. So, so Lulu is going up north to Grandma's, and Rosie's staying with us. So there's been a lot of joy. You know, we took the pups to the square on Wednesday night, and I think they got as much recognition and praise as the trumpet soloist at the concert, and he was good. But the pups, you know, they were there yesterday at the fair and got lots of attention as we walked around the square. It's been a great week. And for me, a great week involves many things, including, you know, we welcomed some Swiss chocolate, I mean, some Swiss relatives to, to our, our home this weekend, and that was great to have them here worshiping with us all the way from Switzerland. And for me, a great week is getting stuff done. Is anybody else like that? And when you can get stuff done and you can fix some things that haven't been working right, it's like double. It's just great. So I got some of the light fixtures fixed that hadn't been working right. Feeling really good. Got my desk. You know, you got to go look at my office. It's the cleanest you'll ever see it. You know, it's just, there's order in my life. I like it. I like it when things are fixed, when things work. And if you're like me, then I know this. You really like it when relationships work. And it's really hard when they don't. And I don't know if any of you have some of those relationships that you could say they're out of order. There's a neon light that's blinking. It's saying, this thing's not working. It's broken. Maybe it's out of order in your home, your marriage, with your parents or with your kids, a sibling. Maybe it's out of order in your workplace or, or in the neighborhood or maybe even right here at church, there's a relationship that's not right. I have found that we do all kinds of things in response to relationships that are out of order. And these two responses don't work at all. One of it is that we withdraw and pretend that there's no problem. We deny it. And so it's like the husband whose wife says, you know, hon, uh, it's not going so well. Maybe we should talk to somebody about it. No, we don't need to go talk to a counselor. We're fine. Everything's fine. We kind of run away from the problems, deny it, withdraw. The other is exactly the opposite. We go on the attack. And so we can become verbally abusive. We can become, we can take legal measures. We can take physical steps to be abusive. And, and these things are the counter opposite of withdrawing. And these don't work. They just further separate and divide and add to the heartache. What do you do to those relationships or a relationship that maybe you have or have had in the past that you'd say, yeah, that's been one of those out-of-order ones? What, what have you done? What have you done? What do you do? James comes to us to remind us that faith works even in disordered relationships. So grab your Bible, or if you need one, grab one from the rack in front of you. James chapter 3, we're finishing out 
chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. And if you need to know where it is in that Bible in the rack, it's on page 855. And it's a short passage, so why don't we just read it together in unison. James chapter 3, reading at verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Now look back and keep your Bibles open as we work through the text. Look back at verse 13. James asks the question, That's a good one for all of us. Who's wise? Who's the wise person? Who's the person that has understanding? And I'm expecting that he's going to say something like this. Well, the wise person is the one who shows it by his knowledge. And he says it's exactly opposite. The wise man shows it by his good life that's marked by these good deeds that are done in humility, a humility that comes from wisdom. He says, wisdom is not just what you know, but it's what you do with what you know. And that's how the Bible consistently talks about wisdom. And so the question is, are we a wise person as God defines it? And we understand from the context here that we need wisdom if we're going to bring order to these disordered, fragmented relationships that we have. We need wisdom. Wisdom that humbles us so that we live for peace. So the question is, then how does wisdom tie into making peace? And the text tells us that this wisdom leads to humility, and it's a humility that we'll need to bring peace to relationships that are messed up. So when the Bible talks about wisdom in the Old Testament, as it introduces the subject of wisdom, it uses this phrase to describe wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom or of understanding. Proverbs 1.7, a lot of other places from Job through the Psalms and Proverbs. You see this phrase, the fear of the Lord. When you hear it, you you start thinking, that's what I thought. You're supposed to be afraid of God. And he's just looking for us to mess up and he's going to nail us. That's not what it's talking about. The fear of the Lord is an expression that talks about seeing God for who he is so that we respond in the fear of the Lord, which is reverent, affectionate, humble obedience in light of who he is. We see God for who he is and we live our life in light of who he is. It's that wisdom, that fear of the Lord that helps us not only see God, but see ourselves. That's humility. Humility, as the Bible works it out, is seeing ourselves as God sees us. 
And the best place to go to see ourselves as God sees us is right at the cross. I'm a sinner who deserves God's judgment, but I'm also an object of his affection that he would send his own son to die for me. I get it right at the cross. And so when I have wisdom, I see God and all of a sudden I realize, hey, guess what? I'm not God. He's completely different than me and I'm not God. And so maybe it's a good idea that I stopped acting like I'm God. Because when I act like I'm God, everything that I do is motivated to make me happy. It's for my ends. And James is going to say, that's the very stuff that divides. That's the stuff that is throwing grenades into relationships all across the world. And so he goes on in verses 14 to 16 to tell us what wisdom doesn't look like, the wisdom from God. He's describing what it doesn't look like to be a peacemaker, what humility doesn't look like, what the good life, this life that's filled and marked with good deeds does not look like. And so look at verse 14. He says, it's not about bitter envy. He says, if you harbor, what a great metaphor, if you harbor, you let those things take a mooring in your own life. You, you rent out a slip to bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts. Don't boast about it. Don't deny it. Literally, don't lie about the truth. Such supposed wisdom doesn't come down from heaven. But it's earthly, it's earthbound, it's unspiritual, it's not of the spirit, it's of the devil, it's not of God. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. So what does it look like to do the opposite of good deeds done in humility? It's to do deeds that are rooted in pride. And we know they're rooted in pride when all of a sudden there becomes this increasing sense of bitterness that's connected to envy, to jealousy, that leads to this selfish ambition that brings disorder and all kinds of evil practices. So think about the word envy. You look it up in Webster's Dictionary, it says this, a painful or resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by another, by someone else, joined with a desire to possess the same advantage. That's bitter envy. I realize that you have something that I don't have, and I think I deserve that. And if I had it, I'd be a lot happier. And, and so I want it. I'm just not resentful that I don't have it, but I now have this increasing desire to somehow figure out how to get it. I want it. And it leads to this selfish ambition that James writes about. And we don't get it when we hear it in the English, but in the original language, this idea of selfish ambition carries not only the idea of resentfulness based on jealousy, but it implies rivalry, of divisiveness, of this kind of party spirit where I'm willing, willing to divide ranks and divide ranks to get what I want. So Paul translates the same word. I mean, this word is translated, which Paul uses in, in Philippians 2.3 with this word rivalry. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. It's the same word, selfish ambition. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. 
You want to lead a life that leads to peace, then you need humility. Because if you don't have humility, what happens is you will become envious and there will be rivalry. There will be conceit in your life and you will live for yourself instead of others. And it's happening all the time. You just think about the flow of bitter envy. Anybody seen that in, in, in the workplace this year? Any bitter envy over someone who got promoted and someone who thought they should have got the job? Anybody who's been envious over the, the high praise that keeps going out to this person and uh, the truth is there's been a whole team of people that have been supporting them to be successful, but the team's not getting the recognition, just the person is. And there's all kinds of envy and resentment. They got the corner office. They got the perks. They got the training, the benefits that somebody else longed for, maybe yourself. Bitter envy shows up in the workplace and it creates selfish ambition where somebody wants more money, wants a better office, wants a bigger bonus, wants more praise and attention and a higher profile. And so it, it breeds disorder. And sometimes the disorder moves us towards workaholism. It's like the guy I overheard this morning going to the coffee shop. He said, I haven't had a day off in 30 days. I'm thinking, wow, better not keep that up long. And workaholism brings disorder, not, not just in, in the team at work, but it brings disorder then in the family if there are those kinds of relationships where you don't have time for the things that have a higher priority and weight in your life. You just don't have time. There's disorder in workaholism. There's disorder where we're trying to scratch and claw to get to the top, to get what we want, and so we'll cheat to get there. We'll attack others and and pull them down a few rungs through slander and gossip and lie, and we'll sabotage their project. And when it gets really wiggy, people show up at the workplace with a gun and there's blood on the floor. James says it starts with this bitter envy that leads to selfish ambition, that leads to disorder and all kinds of evil practices. This works out in neighborhoods. I was talking to a guy the other day up in Door County, and he was saying when we bought the land, there was this dispute at 13 feet. When the surveyors surveyed our plot, they said it was ours. When our next-door neighbors surveyed the plot, their plot, they said that 13 feet was theirs. He said, before I knew what had happened, they built a shed on the 13 feet. They wanted the land. They grabbed it. What do you think the phrase, keep up with the Joneses, is all about? It's all about selfish ambition, trying to get ahead. It's not only in our neighborhoods. It works out right in a church. We, we look at someone and say, man, I wish I had their gifts. I, I wish my small group was going as good as their small group. I, I, I wish the pastor recognized me like he seems to be recognizing that other person. And we become envious. We look at somebody else and go, man, I, I wish that was my marriage. I, I wish I had that kind of a spiritual leader in my home. I, I wish my kids were as together as their kids are. Those kids have memorized the Bible. They've all gotten the Timothy Award. I can't even get my kids to go to Awana. 
and it works out in the church and it breeds a disordered selfish ambition where all of a sudden we're serving for the wrong reasons we're aspiring leadership for the wrong reasons and it's all about us and it leads to disordered relationships in the body of Christ evil practices and works out and we know it in our families and this is where it hits the hardest bitter envy we kind of laugh about the way kids grab toys have you ever seen that kids are convinced that the toy they're supposed to have is the one they don't have it's the one their brother or sister has or the other kid has and they're scratching and clawing and if they have to they're going to bite the other kid's hand off to get the toy because they need that toy there's there's toy envy that starts when we're little kids that grows and all of a sudden we can grow to have this sibling envy so that we we look at a brother or sister and it just seems like they're the golden girl they're the golden boy everything they touch is perfect like they're the perfect student they're the perfect child they never do anything wrong they're they're perfect academically they got all kinds of friends socially you know they serve down at the salvation army they go to guatemala three times a year and you just go man i'm just I, i just i'm not like that and you're so aware of who you aren't as you look at your brother or your sister and envy wells up in your own heart. And it's a destructive envy. And it keeps you from the very pleasures that God would want you to have with a sibling and and it divides. You think about the bitter envy that divides some of the families we read about in the Bible. If you're checking out the Christian faith, and you haven't read through the Bible, one of the things I can tell you right now is you'll be amazed at the candor and the honesty and the, the refusing to sugarcoat the people of God's family. I mean, the families in the Bible are, you, you could just basically say, they're, they're a mess. They're a mess. The very first family, Adam and Eve's family, their son Cain murders his brother Abel because he's envious that God has accepted his sacrifice, his brother's, over his own. And in a jealous rage, he kills his own. He plots it and pulls it off. Then there's a guy named Joseph, favorite child of a guy named Jacob. And his brothers hate him so much that they're willing to kill him, but then decide that would be too much. So let's just sell him like a piece of meat to the Ishmaelites on their way down to to Egypt for 20 pieces of silver. There's Moses, brother and sister, who just are just fed up with this Moses guy. Who does he think he is anyways? Well, he was God's chosen leader. And they didn't like that he was the chosen leader. They wanted a piece of the spotlight of the action and they rebel against him. There's King David, who, uh, King Saul, who's so envious with this bitter envy over his new son-in-law, David, who's got all these things going in his life. The guy's a poet. The guy's loved by the masses and he's a skilled warrior. He saved Saul's neck from being a slave to the Philistines when he kills Goliath. But the next thing you read about is Saul is throwing spears trying to kill this guy. He's hunting him down like a fugitive trying to take his life. If you didn't know it, James reminds us that envy is deadly. And it triggers all kinds of ambitions in our heart 
that are rooted in ourself that bring disorder and all kinds of evil. And what we need is humility. What we need is a wisdom that brings humility so that all of a sudden, I'm not so focused on what I don't have, but I'm becoming more and more aware of what I do have. I realize I don't deserve anything before God, but I'm so grateful for what he's given me. And the antidote to bitter envy is gratitude. And humility fleshes out in gratefulness and thankfulness. You struggle with envy right now? The best thing you can do is make it a habit to end every day writing down three things, three things that you're thankful for. Just cultivating a grateful heart. You got a problem with selfish ambition? Humility is what you need to turn you into a servant. Servanthood is the antidote to selfishness and selfish ambition. You want to get rid of the disorder? You want to get rid of these evil practices that divide and ruin relationships? Then humility leads you to being a peacemaker. And he describes that person in verse 17. So look down at verse 17. As you kind of contemplate this whole thing, is there bitter envy in my life? Are there ambitions in my life that now I'm seeing for the first time? They're messed up ambitions because they got twisted motives around them. Here are the characteristics of a peacemaker. Verse 17, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. So now he says, this is what these good deeds done in humility look, look like. This is what it means to be a peacemaker instead of a peace-breaker. First of all, they're pure. Purity includes everything from our motives to our sexual ethics. Carries the idea of spotless, no sign of envy, no sign of selfish ambition, no evil practices. Next he says we're peace-loving. We know we love peace because we work for peace, we live for peace. There's this great verse that you need to know if you find yourself in a fractured relationship that is so instructive, so true to life. Romans 12, 18. It starts like this. If it is possible, because sometimes it's not. Sometimes the people we're at war with and in conflict with are people that are long gone, not just from our lives, but even from this world. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, which means it takes two to bring reconciliation, but as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And the person who is sowing these seeds, these good deeds done in humility, is someone who loves peace. They love peace more than they love being right. You love peace more than winning an argument. You love peace more than getting your own way. And because of that, you're considerate. You're considerate of others. It's the idea of being gentle, of gentleness. We stop and think about their needs, their ideas. We're focused on them, not ourselves. There's the quality of submissiveness, willing to yield, to give in. Carries the idea of open to reason. See, the, the proud person is not open to reason. They've got it all figured out. They know they're right. The humble person is submissive, willing to yield, 
open to reason. We don't always have to be right. It doesn't always have to be my way or the highway. We willingly yield our rights, our wishes, our ideas for the sake of peace. Then he says they're full of mercy and good fruit. The good fruit that grows from a merciful heart is mercy that's extended to the person in need, the person in misery that needs practical help, and you can give it. And mercy means that you reach out to the person who's been mean to you. One of the great discoveries for me in my life recently is that when you've been wronged by someone, when you're troubled by it, you don't always have to confront the wrong that you're troubled with. You know, I'm kind of this truth teller. Got to tell the truth. And there's another response. And it's not a response that sweeps the issue under the carpet, so to speak. It's dealing with it. It's not denying. And it's dealing with it in a different way that's eyes wide open. You know what's gone wrong and someone's offended you and you can respond in giving and extending mercy to them grace to them, forgiveness to them. Even when they're not asking for it, you do that and you're freed from that which would maybe lead you to the attack side of trying to deal with the conflict. Full of mercy. And when we are full of mercy, it has a miraculous healing power in broken relationships. There's a great illustration of it from Leith Anger's a classic novel. If you haven't read it, it's a great summer read, Peace Like a River. And it tells the story of a guy named Jeremiah Land. He's an average guy. He's a custodian at the local church. He's at the local school. He's got three kids. And the story completely turns when his 16-year-old son, Davy, shoots two teenage boys that break into their house in the middle of the night. And the town turns against him. And Jeremiah's boss the superintendent of schools, Mr. Holgren, turns against him. And the story is told through the eyes of Jeremiah's younger son, Reuben. And he describes Mr. Holgren as a man whose face was a minefield of red boils. He adds, I hated him, I'll admit, and would soon hate him more, but a person had to feel sorry about this face. Mr. Holgren does whatever he can to make Jeremiah's life miserable. Finally, falsely accuses him of drunkenness in front of a cafeteria filled with the students. He fires him right there on the spot. And the narrator, Reuben, tells it in this way. I left my milling classmates and headed for Dad, where he stood in rapt surprise facing Holgren. I hadn't mind to say anything, and indeed I didn't. For as I approached, Dad lifted his hand, sudden as a wind shift, touched Holgren's face, and pulled away. It was the oddest little slap you ever saw. Holgren quailed back a step, hunching defensively, but Dad turned and walked off. The superintendent stood with his fingers, strangely a wonder over his chin, cheeks, and forehead. Then I saw his bedeviled complexion. That face, set always at a rolling boil, had changed. I saw instead skin of a healthy tan. A hale blush spread over cheekbones that suddenly held definition. Above his eyes, the shine of a constant seepage had vanished, vanished, and light lay at rest upon his brow. Listen, there are easier things in witnessing a miracle of God. 
For his part, Mr. Holgren didn't know what to make of it. He looked horrified. The new peace in his hide didn't sink deep. He covered his face from view and slunk from the cafeteria. I know what had happened. I knew exactly what to make of it. And it made me mad enough to spit. What business had Dad in healing him? What right had Holgren to cross paths with the great God Almighty? And that same question could go from our lips. What right do they have that they should receive mercy from me when they've wronged me so deeply? And the answer is, what right do any of us have to have received mercy from God? And the life that is filled with God's wisdom that works out in humility through these good deeds is a heart that's full of mercy to those who've wronged us. And I'm sure there's a whole bunch of people in this room that you're thinking of someone right now. And the path of peace is through a heart that's filled and overflowing with the good fruit of mercy. Well, he ends the list with the two words, impartial and sincere. You know, being people who play favorites, that leads to division. He's already talked about that in chapter 2 where they were favoring the rich. We treat everybody the same if we're wise. We treat everybody as Christ-treated people, seeing them for who they are, made in the image of God. And we're sincere, literally, without hypocrisy is what that word means, sincere. There's consistency between our words and our actions with everybody. And James says, these are the good deeds that flow from the heart that's filled with wisdom. These are the good deeds that lead to peace. Deeds that are pure and peace-loving and gentle and submissive and full of mercy and impartial and sincere. And if this is the, the seed that we're sowing in our life, he says, expect that you are going to reap a harvest of righteousness. What does that mean? You're going to become more and more like Christ. And in that, find fullness and joy and peace and be so better positioned to bring peace to all that is out of order in your world. Anybody here today looking for peace? You haven't heard a whole lot that I've said ever since I said the workplace or ever since I said a marriage or a brother, sister, or the neighbor. You've just been distracted in all that. And you've been distracted for a while in all of that. You wake up thinking about it. You dream about it. And you're longing for peace. Peace. Just a little taste of it. The Bible has a lot to say about peace. In fact, the gospel is described as the gospel of peace in the New Testament. And here's what the Bible says for anybody looking for peace. You won't find it here until you have it here. There's no peace in our families, in our neighborhoods at work until we find it with God. And peace with God is found in a relationship with him. 
We sometimes hear people say at the end of their life, I I need to make peace with God, or or I've made my peace with God. And the Bible tells us, actually, God has made peace with us through Christ. And the peace that you're looking for comes through a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, who is called the Prince of Peace. And Jesus came to bring peace. Romans 5 says this, Therefore, since we've been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God. It's by faith, not by works. Because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done, not because of what we've done. It's what he's done for us. The one who was perfect, the one was, who was filled with humility, the one who's called the wisdom of God, who always lived for others, he's the one who mounted the cross because you and I deserve to die. Why? Because we'd broken ranks with God. The reason there's a disordered sign, out of order sign over our relationship with God is not because God turned his back on us, because we said, God, I don't really think you're good. God, I don't really need you to tell me how to live my life. God, I, I want to find my own way in this world. And so we doubted his goodness, we rejected his authority, we broke ranks and disobeyed his clear commands. And we deserve judgment. But the scripture said Jesus came and lived that perfect life. He was the one who was completely pure, the one who was completely full of mercy, the one who was completely submissive, the one who was completely gentle, the one who was completely peace-loving, sincere, impartial. And he died for those of us who haven't been, and that's all of us, so that we wouldn't have to face judgment. And the scriptures say that relationship is founded and begins by faith. What is faith? It's trusting, it's leaning, it's relying that what Jesus Christ did is good enough for me. That he died for my sins and I can have forgiveness and I can have peace with God and now I can become a peacemaker. There's a prayer that I'm gonna pray in just a moment. And if you're longing for that relationship, that will bring peace into your life and allow you to pursue peace in your relationships, then maybe this is a prayer that expresses the desires of your heart. It goes like this. Dear God, please forgive me for rebelling against you and ignoring you. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to die for me. And thank you for raising him from the dead to give me life. Please change me and help me to live a life that is marked by good deeds done in humility and so if that's your heart's desire there's no magic in words but if that's your heart's desire will you pray that with me silently as we pray it in just a few moments let's pray our heavenly father we do not want to be in denial about this whole thing this whole thing of envy jealousy ambitions that are messed up We don't want to be in denial about disordered relationships and evil practices. So we just confess it. We confess that stuff. I ask you to forgive us and rid our hearts of that poison. And we ask that you would give us eyes that see you more clearly, that you give us a hunger for your word that takes us to who you are, that our worship in this place would continue to open eyes and hearts to your greatness so we see ourselves as we ought, 
and our lives are marked with humility that leads to peace. And Lord, for anyone here today who longs for peace and is looking for peace with you, would you hear them now even as they pray? Dear God, please forgive me for rebelling against you, for ignoring you. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to die for me. And thank you for raising him from the dead. Give me new life. Change me. Help me to live a life that's marked by good deeds done in humility. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.